Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome on what is indeed a pleasant day, actually. Uh, so warm welcome to Marlborough House. Uh, we have a, a very distinguished panel, and I see an equally distinguished audience with high commissioners, colleagues from our high commissions, and other partners present here today. So good to see everyone, and a warm welcome again. Today, we have normally, when I introduce a topic, I would customarily say it's an interesting topic. So I'm not going to say that today, because we all have been following the news about what has been taking place globally. And with the declaration yesterday by Margaret Chan from WHO with respect to the Zika virus, I think provides eloquent testimony to the importance of the issue that we are discussing today. I'm from the, the Caribbean, and most of the jurisdictions there, actually all the Commonwealth member states are small countries. And they are in very close geographic proximity to South America and Brazil in particular. So this emergency, this global health emergency, I mean, for the Caribbean, it is being taken extremely seriously. And the point that we want to make as a Commonwealth is that whilst we are gathering to discuss this important policy issue here on global health security, this is a country that is well endowed. Uh, it's a developed country. And at the same time, it has an infrastructure. As much as the infrastructure is criticized, it has a very solid infrastructure. But countries in the Caribbean, those in those LDCs in Africa, and those in the Pacific, they tend to suffer the most because they have the most limited capacities to respond to these challenges. And that's why when Commonwealth health ministers met in May of last year in Geneva, the issue of health security, health security system, the issue of universal health coverage, they were all upper mind from the standpoint of, of health ministers and uppermost on, in, in terms of their thinking. So I'm delighted that we are here to look at this issue today because in May of this year, again, our health ministers will meet in Geneva and we would want to provide a perspective that's powerful and compelling, but at the same time, relevant. And as we commence our discussions today uh, with a very strong panel to my extreme left, Dr. Rudiger Kresh, I'm sure I got his, his name wrong, from WHO, warm welcome. Uh, we have Elaine Chatini uh, from the Public Health Agency of Canada, welcome. To my right, we have uh, uh, Lord Baker, very close uh, partner and strong supporter of the Commonwealth with us, and, uh, and a very distinguished expert in his own right, welcome. And on my extreme right, we have a gentleman from the 
UN Digital Health Initiative and the 2030 Innovation Task Force, whom I met and we worked together. And Dennis had trouble recollecting that, but he said, oh yes, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yes, but, but we worked we work closely some, some, some years ago. So we're gonna have, I think, a very good discussion, but I very much value discussions where there is a strong interactive dialogue. So we will hear very short perspectives from the distinguished panelists here, but I want to have a conversation and an engagement with participants as well. So with these perhaps two long opening remarks, Dr. Kresch, please. Thank you very much, uh, dear Dad, for your uh, introductory remarks also, because they were not only very personal, but very pertinent. Uh, what we see um, in many countries, two-thirds of all our member states, actually, um, what we see is that the core capacities of the international health regulations are not yet met. And so, therefore, it's been, and, and we do have also colleagues here who are just currently reviewing this internationally binding law on the international health regulations. Um, in parts, this is due to um, um, a lack of capacities with regard to competencies, capacities in learning and knowledge, uh, in terms of money, uh, but also what um, the review committees around the world have found out is a lack of political commitment to really implement the, these core capacities and to fulfill the international obligation they have. Um, yes, well, we, we have seen quite a few health emergencies in the last year. If you just remember, Ebola is still in, in action, actually. We're, we're not down to zero in all countries right now. It's still there. Um, it might flare up again after such a, an emergency. We've seen MERS, and now we see Zika. All of these emergencies being very different. You cannot compare the Ebola disease with the Zika virus disease. And it will pose very different challenges to countries to actually be able to respond to this health emergency um, in, in, in currently in the South Americas, but you know, um, spreading very fast. What what is what does it tell us? It tells us number one, we will see more of those emergencies, and that is due to the interconnectedness of this world. This is something we want. We want an interconnected world, but the increase of travel and trade and mobility has actually led to the travel of viruses as well. And so therefore, the other side of this interconnectedness must be that we pay more attention to um, the health effects um, um, that, that uh, are drawn from that. The other thing is that health is very much connected with other sectors. What we're doing in the agricultural world, how we breed our animals, how close we are to them, has a lot to do with health, because all of these health emergencies have actually um, emerged from, not from the health side, but from 
um, the other sides, for instance, agriculture or, or tourism or so. So we, we see this, on the one hand side, interconnectedness of this world, on the other side, the more and more uh, interconnect interconnection with other sectors. And so therefore, our response in, pre in the prevention of emergencies um, must be also to work with those other sectors much more concretely as we've done before. We have to understand, coming from the health side, we have to understand the agendas in these other sectors. We need to understand why they take certain decisions. And we have to, perhaps beforehand, also analyze the potential health consequences of certain decisions that are taken, for instance, in the agricultural world. And so, therefore, there's new roles for us in, in health. As you can see, and that's my third remark, and then I'm coming to a close already, health has much actually increased in the attention of um, the world of heads of state. 20 years ago, we were, uh, we were dreaming about this. Um, now we see it through emergencies, which is not the best way. But we've always, in the health promotion and prevention field, We've always said we need what we call health in all policies. That was our man, um, mantra, if you will. Now we see that this is the solution because otherwise we will not, we will not, uh, we will not solve the, the problems. And last not least, we need to learn in the health systems. We need to integrate health security much more into the systems and perhaps we can talk about what this means in the further discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you so, so very much, Dr. Kretsch. Uh, Elaine, and I should also like to add that the incoming chair of the Commonwealth Health Ministers is the Minister of Health from Canada, who will assume that post from May of this year. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to, um, to share with you. Um, so I'll just speak very briefly about um, Canada's perspectives on health security and, and, and how we're framing it and the kind of work that we're, um, we're doing in this realm. Um, first of all, um, I think it's uh, maybe obvious because we're here uh, today that uh, we tackle health security really from the domestic and the international perspectives. I think it's really important to, to work on these two, two fronts simultaneously. Um, we have in Canada um, invested heavily in some key infrastructure. Some of our infrastructure, and I use that term not to mean just hardwire and um, uh, physical infrastructure, but uh, systems and relationships for many years to ensure that the country is as connected as possible. It's not perfect. I think that there might be some, some vision of some very grand, very sophisticated um, uh, infrastructure, it's good, uh, it's good, but it constantly needs um, work. And I say that because it's caught up in jurisdictional issues. Uh, Canada is not a unitary state. We have a health system that is devolved to the provinces and territories, so we do have to work domestically to ensure that constitutionally we are um, working collaboratively and sharing information correctly. Information sharing, data holding and information sharing is still an issue. Um, uh, in Canada that we grapple with all the time. And in fact, we um, established a multilateral information sharing agreement for emerging infectious diseases, which is 
from the perspective of other federal government departments, groundbreaking, that we would actually have an agreement between levels of government that ensures information sharing. Um, so we're quite proud of that, but it took a long, long time to negotiate. So it's something that is, in the, in the realm of health security, fundamental, and yet it's hard to do. And it takes a lot of patience to, to develop these types of information sharing agreements and the infrastructure required to manage your health security events as they come. Uh, we also have a, a global public health information network, nine languages, thousands of media articles that are scanned every single day. Uh, and uh, it's a contribution that we make to the World Health Organization as well in terms of health security, early, early monitoring, early alerts of something that might be brewing. In fact, we found uh, through this system the first indications of MERS happening in Saudi Arabia. The official surveillance system had not kicked in yet, but the informal surveillance system had picked it up. And so again, another contribution that, um, that we make that we think is important. Um, we are heavily invested in areas of biosecurity, uh, biosafety as foundational to ensuring that uh, we are not um, inadvertently uh, manipulating pathogens and toxins in our country while they're importing them, uh, working with them internal to the country that poses a risk to Canadians and to the world. And so that's another piece of work that we think is really important. And it was mentioned uh, again today at this meeting that Canada is cooperating um, with the UK and other Commonwealth countries in ensuring that lab capacity and biosecurity is enhanced in some countries of the Commonwealth. Um, I think that the, um, the other areas that I think are very important to us, and really it's a lesson coming from Ebola, um, is that we, we still have a lot to learn when it comes to sample sharing, when it comes to um, rapid research and development. We have a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to emerging viruses like Zika. We have no countermeasures, so we're investing heavily in Canada in trying to ascertain our risks, what our risk profile is domestically and internationally, and where we want to be you know, forward-looking in terms of the development of medical countermeasures. Um, Zika was not on our list. But here we are, so we're contributing again, like so many uh, other countries, to trying to find um, a vaccine. But there are so many areas of work that we still have to tackle in the, in the realm of health security um, that it, it's, it's a full-time job for, for many of us. Um, and I think the other piece that was mentioned today that, that Canada holds very um, uh, close to, to its heart, really, is the um, work globally and ensuring some coherency and complementarity in efforts, and we mentioned this today a lot. The Commonwealth Secretariat has an opportunity to look at where the gaps are as a result of the G7, G20, the Global Health Security Agenda uh, championed by President Obama, um, and, and looking for that space that makes sense for the Commonwealth Secretariat and, uh, and uh, uh, demonstrating a value add in supporting and working with countries that um, uh, could learn from one another. Uh, again, we may have something to contribute um, uh, to Commonwealth countries that are looking at enhancing their health security capacity, but we are continuing to learn ourselves in Canada and build on infrastructure that needs enhancement. So if we can do that together in a frame and in a way that, again, helps the global <coughs> enhancement in, in health security, I think, I think we're going to be in a better better place, and so we look forward to that opportunity. Thank you so Thank you. very much. Well, well, well. May I now invite Dennis? Dennis? Mr. Chair, dear that. Um, yeah. 
2015 marked a game change in global health. Um, we all know about the unprecedented um, Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which exposed the massive fragilities in the um, international global health response to crises, which has been taken up in a number of um, forum and independent reports from Harvard and London School of Hygiene and to, um, um, I'm sorry, where was I? Um, to the Secretary General's own um, high-level panel on global health crisis, which is due to report within the coming days. And I think it's being rewritten um, in retrospect because of the Zika crisis. But it also led to an unprecedented new level of solidarity amongst the international community. Ebola really set off um, a, a fire alarm, and um, there have been some positives taken from that. At the same time, the agreement on the uh, post-2030 sustainable development agenda is quite fundamental. The major difference between the Sustainable Development Goals and the Millennium Development Goals is that the SDGs cover all countries. And this is particularly pertinent in uh, the area of global health because we're now all in the same boat, really, uh, particularly um, as we try and respond um, to uh, new and emerging pandemics. Meanwhile, um, we're now approaching 7 billion mobile users on this planet and 3 billion internet users. This is approaching ubiquity. Um, in terms of um, access to information and communications technology. Uh, the Ebola response um, really has not jumped on the data-driven innovation uh, bandwagon, which we need to jump on if we are really going to look at um, uh, 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 tackling um, new and emerging epidemics in an innovative way um, at source. Um, and you have to approach this in terms of community mobilization, data interoperability, and at many other levels. At many other levels. We really have to move towards um, a breakthrough research and development agenda. And again, um, many of the reports which have come out recently, um, including the one from the National Association of Medicine in the United States, which is driven by the global health security agenda, are, uh, are really um, addressing the lack of R&D. They're suggesting one billion dollars a year extra in research and development moving forward, and a four and a half billion dollar uh, package um, in terms of risk preparedness for uh, new and emerging pandemics. Um, that is set against the cost of these pandemics, um, which they set at $60 billion a year. So they're making an economic case for actually doing this and putting it in place. But there are many, many levels that we have to address. What is actually new is that the megatrends in global health, whether it be uh, Ebola to NCDs, um, to um, post-antibiotic uh, era, they're converging at the same time as the ICT or the information communications technology trends in smart mobility, in social media, in broadband communications, in cloud computing are also converging. Both industries are trying to make sense of these megatrends and how they move forward. To move forward, we will have to actually develop an entirely new data-driven roadmap, data governance um, at a level which empowers individuals, communities, and governments to have trust in the sharing of personal and public health data. And we are looking at digital health platforms which will transform virtually everything that we do. Vinod Kosler, one of the great guys in Silicon Valley, um, suggests that 80% of everything that doctors or GPs do today will be done by the network tomorrow. Uh, this is a complete reversal of roles and total disintermediation in terms of the medical profession. And there will be and there is institutional inertia in this area. 
The Commonwealth is very dear to the task force we launched at the General Assembly because um, uh, two of our co-chairs are Agnes Bingawahu, who's the Minister of Health from Rwanda. And Rwanda is leading um, in terms of the data revolution in Africa and is uh, in advance of many, if many um, advanced economies um, in terms of implementation. It's up there with Sweden in terms of how it's deploying technology and data um, for universal health coverage, whereas all of that started from just trying to combat HIV-AIDS. So many lessons we can learn from there. Sam Petroda, our other co-chair, was Minister of Innovation for um, uh, Prime Minister um, in India and is also um, a great inventor and Indian billionaire, actually. Um, on the mobile technology side. So my point is that um, we cannot really look at anything in terms of global response now without looking at a data-driven um, agenda to move forward, which will em embrace supply chains, it will embrace risk preparedness, it will embrace catalytic partnerships in a multi-sectoral and multi-stakeholder way. And finally, at the national level in terms of national digital health strategies, this has to be done as an all-government response. For too long, the ministries of health have been in isolation from the ministries of ICT, ministries of finance, and uh, ministries of education. We need an all-government uh, response moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, dear dad. I have to change my face next time so you don't pick on me. <laughs> Thank you, um, panelists, for um, uh, elaborating what's, um, what are being put in place as the Canadian um, uh, speaker said, infrastructure being put in place. Um, coming from a country that could be vulnerable to uh, health security, any types, and I hear that with the particular one that is current at the moment, it has already arrived in the Pacific. Now coming from that part of the world um, where we have no infrastructure, uh, where we have basically nothing to combat anything that might just arrive um, at our doorstep. I, I didn't quite um, get the connection between all that has been said and countries like mine should this thing come to our shores at any given moment. Now, as I said, I heard, I read that it's already in the Pacific. I didn't quite get how we are to address these things. What is it? What brings it? How are we to, in, in, we're talking about emergency here, 
how are we to address this thing? I, I didn't quite get that connection to right down to the people's level. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much, High Commissioner. Do we have another observation or question? Catherine uh, Ellis, I will introduce you, my director of youth. Thank you, Deirdre. Yes, my name is Catherine Ellis. I'm the Director of Youth Affairs here for the Commonwealth. So I'm taking the chance to ask a question related to my area of work, but very much with health as well. I actually have two quite separate questions, and since I have the microphone, I'll ask both of them. Um, the first one is related to... Uh, so last year in May, I went to Sierra Leone while the Ebola crisis was still happening because I was looking... It was coming to an end, and I was looking very much at how the role of young people that was so important in addressing Ebola through public education, through contact tracing, through the, the, the health workers who, who were on the front line. Young people played a huge role in, in addressing um, Ebola and, and helping bring that crisis to an end. And I was very interested in seeing how that role of young people could be continued into the post-Ebola recovery and rebuilding crisis, process. But it, it, it struck me that they had played this enormous role and I'm not sure that that was really fully acknowledged. And I wonder in these sort of health crises that are happening and that we're looking um, at happening further into the future, is there some discussion in, in public policy around actually creating and, and really acknowledging and taking very seriously the role that young people can play, particularly in these countries where the youth population is 60, 70% of the population? So that's my first question. The second question is related to another part of my work, which is um, the, the Sport for Development and Peace work sits within the Youth Division here at the Commonwealth as well. And part of that work is it's about using sport intentionally for development outcomes and of course addressing non-communicable diseases is a very important part of that. So I'm, I'm interested to know, is NCDs considered to be a, a global health security problem or is it too slow moving to be coming into that category? Um, thank you. Thank you so much Catherine. Do we have another question? Thank you. I'm uh, Sean Griffiths um, and I chair PHE's Global Health Committee. Um, I, I'm uh, just wondering what the panel thinks about how we can best develop the capacity to respond to these increasing global threats. We have, uh, we had Ebola, we now have Zika, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. Uh, how are we going to develop the capacity within our healthcare systems, but also across government. We, we make statements that we need to do that. Actually, what do we need to do? Um, and what actions might we take away? Thank you so very much. Final question before, please, sir. Um, thank you. I'm Brian McCluskey, Director of Global Health for Public Health England. Uh, just, it has been mentioned already Prior to 2009, nobody would have put a swine flu virus from Mexico on the list of things that might cause a global health emergency. Prior to 2014, nobody would have put Ebola on that list. And in December last year, when Nature magazine asked people to predict the next one, nobody put Zika on that list. So it seems there's two things we can do. We can either get better at predicting what might happen, or we get better at responding to things that we can predict and do more general response. And if the panel had $100 million, which of those two would you put the money in? Thank you so very much. Uh, Dr. Kresh? Thank you very much for these very good questions. And I wanted to start with um, 
The first one, um, how, how does it relate to the people and how do we react immediately to, to this crisis, even in, in, in a setting where we don't feel we have all the capacities needed? Now, um, if I understand you correctly, you, you are referring to the Zika virus disease and there's, and, and there's very concrete things that everyone can do is to um, get rid of all the little water pits where mosquitoes can actually stay and then um, use contrapellants and cover yourself so that you're not bitten and especially if you are pregnant, right? So there's, um, the, the, the usual population will not be hurt. And this is the difference to other emergencies. Um, as, as a normal citizen, um, you will feel perhaps three days of fever and then it will disappear again. If you're pregnant, this might be, and I, I, I just want to say it might be, that then your, your child might be affected, right? So if you're pregnant, you need to cover yourself. You need to really make sure you're not bitten by a mosquito. And everything that helps doing that will help the community. The other thing that um, was brought up is the community engagement. Now, in, in, in an emergency like Zika, it's so important to work with the community that everybody is alert, that everybody is sensitized, and that we're all together doing the things needed. And it is not a miracle. It is just to get rid of the mosquitoes that actually, um, uh, that actually are responsible for transmitting the Zika virus disease. So this is very concretely what you need to do in the Caribbean or in any other country that Zika virus has, has affected so far. Let me come to um, one question about the non-communicable diseases and, and health systems. Could this be an emergency? Well, if we are not drastically rethinking health systems, it will be because a study from the World Economic Forum and the World Bank has come up with a figure that uh, in only uh, 20 years, the costs for treating patients with non-communicable diseases, so cancers, cardiovascular diseases, and so on, will take up 50% of the, of the GDP of any country. So this is not sustainable. We cannot deal with this. So therefore, we need very innovative approaches how we organize our health services, how we are integrating this with social services, and how we are doing a lot of work in the prevention of the NCDs. And finally, um, what, so yes, there will be all sorts of emergencies, and as I alluded to, we expect in WHO that we will see more of this, and Brian, you've just alluded to, to, to it, very, very eloquently. Yes, so what, are we, what do we need to do? We need to, first of all, have the workers, the health workers and the social workers in place so that they can deliver the, the health care and social care needed so that people who are sick receive the care they need without actually falling into, uh, into financial hardship. This is universal health coverage. This means that we need to have quality services 
right? And we need to see what, what does it mean to have a quality service in, um, in the UK or um, in, in, in the Caribbean or in, in, in Tunisia or wherever. It might mean something slightly different, but what is important is that we're looking at the primary health care. So to deliver the primary health care services in the first place and not too quickly, and that is what we see in too many countries, jump to the tertiary, to the very expensive, high-tech care that many people are seeking for. So there's also a mindset shift that we're looking at primary health care, low-tech as, as, as much as possible, and for everybody. I think that's what we need to have in place. Um, good financing mechanisms, of course, good information. If you don't know who's born and who's, die, who's, who's dead, how can you then build up a system that actually caters for the future? Right. Yes, thank you. I, I, I mean, just on your point, Rudiger, of, of primary health care for all, I mean, even countries like Canada um, it might sound counterintuitive, but 12% um, of your GDP on health care is considered not sustainable. Um, and so I think that primary health care is, right, is the right way to go. Um, it's also more in the realm of prevention if you're dealing with primary health care interventions early, you know, up, upstream. I think it makes more sense for everybody. You're quite right. I just wanted to maybe speak a little bit to the comment um, that uh, the High Commissioner from Papua New Guinea made. And I can see, I can see you know, when, when you hear about the type of infrastructure that a, our country has, uh, and then you think, well, we don't have any of that, therefore we have nothing. Um, I think you have many countries around the world, or most countries around the world, have what I would consider to be very valuable and rich infrastructure. And it might not look anything like the one we have in Canada. And that is that you have um, community leaders and elders that are really core to community life who um, are important sources of information. Um, you have schools, educators, and NGOs that are also part of your infrastructure and part of your fabric who are key to supporting communities and addressing emerging infectious diseases through information sharing and support. Um, our colleague Dennis has talked a lot about, um, you know, how the world is dig digitized and, you know, virtually, I don't know if any of you know um, a 15 or 16 or 20 year old that doesn't have mobile technology, but the world is connected through mobile technology in every part of the world. And uh, that is also an important piece of infrastructure that governments can leverage uh, in the event of you know, wanting to share information like Rudiger shared on what to do to protect yourself against Zika virus, for example. I, I also think that you know, we talk about formal infrastructure or formal surveillance mechanisms that seem very elaborate, and they can be quite elaborate, but I think that the informal surveillance systems that many countries have of connecting clinicians, nurses, midwives, number of health providers, however you define them and what role they play on the ground, the, they're, the, the, they're your early reporting system. They know what's going on and they also can be organized in a way. I mean, it can't just be um, um, totally uh, haphazard, but I mean, you can organize those clinicians and the folks who are working on the ground to be able to be early alerting systems and share information. That's all infrastructure as well. So I think it has huge value 
Uh, and in, even though we don't consider it in our country, we don't think about that because we're thinking about national systems and more elaborate um, information sharing agreements and, and surveillance systems. I think that you probably have very rich and resourceful infrastructure that can be, um, again, organized in a way that is, becomes part of your health system. Thank you so much, Eileen. Uh, um, yeah, excellent questions, super questions. Um, in terms of Papua New Guinea, we're very lucky on the planet to have a number of great entrepreneurs. One is uh, Mo Ibrahim from Sudan, who did the impossible and put mobile in the poorest of the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa. He subsequently sold the company, and um, it's now part of Bharti Airtel, which runs all half of the mobile networks in India and um, Africa. But in Papua New Guinea, uh, it's run by a friend of mine, Dennis O'Brien. Dennis also runs the mobile network Digicel in Haiti and is um, uh, rather a good philanthropist as well. In fact, I was in Dublin yesterday and was speaking to Dennis um, about um, Zika particularly in terms of uh, his networks in Haiti, the Caribbean, and in Papua New Guinea. The key um, point, and, and um, Rudiger articulated this brilliantly in terms of the information you need has to get out. Whether it gets out to a literate population or an illiterate population, um, you can do that over mobile technology now. And so um, there is an option to use this virtual infrastructure, whether it be mobile or the internet, um, in making this leapfrog um, to the future in terms of information sharing on healthcare. So I think there's some good news on, on, in, that, in that respect, especially for the PNG. Um, in terms of the youth population, great question. No, it's not being raised in uh, public policy debates. And as you say, 60 to 70%. The future of health is youth. Now, on the, the good news is that the youth know how to use this technology better than any of us in the room. I'm a dinosaur. I've been in this industry for 30 years. And um, a 10-year-old can, can um, use a smartphone better than I can. You know, so, um, and there is this big paradigm shift which is coming now from just pure mobile devices. If anyone is reading the Financial Times in the last few days, two major articles on smart Africa. In other words, the use of smartphone. A smartphone has the memory and capacity of a mainframe computer of 20 years ago. This is a phenomenal leap. And we're just still coming to terms with it. As we're coming to terms with social media, which is a monster and... Uh, as well as having some benefits. Um, so, yeah, we have to engage with youth. Uh, but um, uh, uh, the Wellcome Foundation are actually looking at the youth issue in terms of um, uh, sponsoring some debates in that area. NCDs is going to lead to the collapse of developed and developing economies. It's 20% of gross domestic product expenditure in the United States on healthcare. It's utterly unsustainable, and um, it's going to get worse. The answer here, I'm pushing technology, and it isn't the be-all and end-all, but actually um, it's low-cost technology which we have to push now. Uh, we went for these high-end solutions in the United Kingdom. Connect UK was written off. Accenture walked away from a $3 billion contract. Extraordinary, you know? Completely ill-designed, madness. And you can do this for $100 million rather than £10 billion in um, any economy with the use of smart internet and... Um, and mobile moving forward. So there's, so there's that. The other thing is that um, information really is the lifeblood of future healthcare and well-being. There's no doubt. We need good data, and we haven't got it. Uh, if you go into an emergency unit in New York City, you can go into another one, five of them, in the same night, and they won't know who you are or what's actually happened to you. There is no communications between emergency units in, in New York City. This is absurd. Sweden is a very good model in that area. And I think the last question from Brian, 
uh, I'd bet on what we don't know, I think so. <laughs> because um, we really couldn't have predicted um, uh, the pace of the um, digital revolution so far. And, and the, the emergence, I mean, Zika, I mean, in Davos, nobody was talking about Zika. And then suddenly on Saturday, it was a global issue. This is extraordinary. And I think um, one of the uh, participants this morning said this should have been declared as a global emergency last October. Again, we're hi behind the ball, as we were for a full year on Ebola. And that's unacceptable. So um, I think the bright side of Ebola and Zika is that it's really shocking us into action. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dennis. Uh, Lord Kaker has to leave around 4.15 or so. Uh, so we would hear from him soon. But it would be good for him in his response to reflect on the questions that were asked earlier. But is there one or perhaps two issues that people would like to flag? So when Ajay responds, he can also provide a perspective. Emilova? possible for Lord Keka or any of the panelists to perhaps identify a few priority areas in which the Commonwealth can actually add value to the, to the global response, to global health security. <coughs> and perhaps, and slightly related, is um, the perception that a lot of the preparedness and global health security agenda is actually developed in the north and then filtered down to the south and possibly hence the question from PNG. Are there, that could be a possible role for the Commonwealth, but are there any agendas or groups or organizations or, or interventions that actually are translating even some initiatives from from the south to the north, apart from the south to the south. This morning we heard about um, lessons learned from Ebola that were collated by the AU, but one gets the impression that a lot of uh, the northern hems hemisphere agenda leaders are not really assimilating that kind of information. And that links, I think, with the intervention from Canada of that there is actually a rich resource within the, the communities that are actually having to respond to these things uh, with bare minimum resources. So the lessons learned could be particularly useful to other southern, other southern hemisphere communities. And this links in with some of the things that the health ministers actually asked the Commonwealth Secretariat to help member states with. Do we have another question? Another view, please. Thank you for the uh, excellent comments and uh, the views of the panel uh, so far and also uh, the questions. Uh, I'm David Harper from Chatham House and there's been quite a lot of talk, uh, not least this morning, but uh, over the last little while about the Sustainable Development Goals and at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals is this need for uh, a multi-sectoral approach. Uh, and of course the essence is to leave no one behind. Well, it's not just the sustainable development goals, of course it applies to the health area, there's a health sustainable uh, development goal, but it goes right the way through uh, the SDGs. 
but in particular in this area of emergencies and global health security, the multi-sectoral approach is critical. We've known it for many, many years. So my question to the panel really is, we can say the words, it's hard enough to get decision makers in the health area engaged. How on earth do we set about trying to get this multi-sectoral approach, whether it's politicians or decision makers in the private sector or in civil society organisations, outside the health sector, how do we get this multi-sectoral engagement? Thank you. Thank you so very much. So we'll hear from Lord Kaker, uh, and then we will continue the discussions thereafter. Ajay? Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Secretary-General. I've been fascinated by these presentations and by the questions. I'm a surgeon, so I'm not used to uh, addressing uh, issues of global health security, uh, nor indeed of uh, many of the health emergencies that we've touched upon today. But I, I think there are some really important messages that we've heard. And the first is this, that we are uniquely now, all of us involved in healthcare, in development, uh, in the questions of security around health in a position that we haven't found ourselves previously because the question of health and healthcare is now at the top of every government's agenda, be they in well-developed health economies or in developing economies. Uh, and we have to address the challenge that that new profile for health and healthcare provides. And... That is going to be complicated because uh, there are so many different aspects to it. We have acute emergencies as the one that's recently been declared. We have the problem of chronic diseases that has an insidious and uh, really quite draining effect on health economies and health systems throughout the world. Uh, we have the need to understand a changing global demographic and uh, also within that, changing expectations with regard to healthcare and what health systems have to provide individual citizens. All of that has to be done within the context of fiscal constraint because ever-increasing demand uh, is also attended by opportunities to do more and more but a view, as we've heard even in the United States or in Canada with 12% of GDP, that demands will always increase. So there needs to be a rational approach to all of this. And within that context, I suppose the question, uh, part of the question for today is what role can the Commonwealth play? And I've been very impressed by the commitment of the Commonwealth Secretariat in the last uh, two or three years to the whole question of health and the particular role that an organization uh, representing 53 countries, a third of the world's population, uh, with a diversity of health economies, can play in achieving the most meaningful impact for the individual citizen in each of those countries. And I think a lot of it uh, actually comes down to some very, very simple uh, initial um, commitments. The first that we've heard about this afternoon is the question of information. And it's information that can be shared rapidly between governments and between health systems because within the Commonwealth family we have a huge amount of knowledge 
but it's not shared necessarily effectively. And it's not shared in a way, I think coming to the point of bringing on board broader stakeholders, it's not shared in a way that allows in each individual country, in each region, uh, in each health system, the capacity to bring the different constituents on board to deliver the kind of success that's necessary. And that's a, a great failing. So we as doctors, as medical researchers, as healthcare professionals are good at understanding what we understand. Politicians understand what they understand. Those responsible and having the privilege to lead health systems understand what they understand. But we don't share it very effectively at a local level, let alone between uh, regions and between countries. So that, I think, is a big, important challenge for the Commonwealth. There is, as we've heard again this afternoon, a huge capacity to talk about these issues. We heard from the High Commissioner from Papua New Guinea, there is a real practical uh, consideration, a new health emergency or problem arriving on the front door of a nation with limited resources, part of this great family of the Commonwealth, how is it going to ensure that citizens in that country can avail themselves of the knowledge that we all talk about in this great organization rapidly and effectively to make a difference to their lives today and tomorrow? It's a very big challenge that I think the Secretariat and the Commonwealth moving forward is ideally positioned to address. I think then there is the, the broader question of how we bring uh, the question of universal coverage, universal access to healthcare, a fundamental, uh, many would argue right, but uh, also a fundamental necessity to sustain economies, to sustain democracies going forward. Because the health question now is of course an individual question for individual citizens, their families. It's a question for governments in terms of delivering public policy, but it's also a fundamental element of sustaining democracies and sustaining economies. And we need, as healthcare professionals, and broadly those of us who have the privilege to, to work in the healthcare, to understand that dynamic, to understand the fact that as populations become better informed with social media and with the other tools of democracy, they will demand of their leaders access to good quality healthcare. And there will be an increasing resentment if that healthcare is not provided. So if we're all determined to deliver healthcare for the individual, deliver systems uh, that are effective within nations, and then ensure that we provide a broader stability economically and in terms of social cohesion and democracy, we need to address the question of the provision of healthcare and ensuring uh, that our citizens in, in countries throughout the world, but in this case within the 53 Commonwealth nations, can achieve the health aspirations that they have for themselves and their families. Now, I think that uh, if we look at the, the, the task that this particular panel was set, uh, what are the top priorities? Well, I think the top priorities are to ensure that we share information, that we develop effective systems to understand the challenges as they emerge, and invest in being able to uh, respond rapidly to the systems as they emerge. We need to be better at mapping the horizon and understanding what might lie ahead, but we need to be effective in delivering solutions today as the challenges face us. That means mobilizing, and there are many better experts than me in this regard, 
mobilizing the global, the regional, the national resource, the Commonwealth resource to address those problems. It is always said, and I think it's absolutely true, that having strategies of prevention are more effective ultimately than strategies focused merely on dealing with a crisis, although those strategies must exist. And in that regard, I think um, turning our attention to innovation that can be adopted at scale and pace across disparate health economies must be an important priority. We've also, uh, I think, touched upon just briefly the need to ensure that we share the opportunities across the 53 Commonwealth nations to develop and train uh, healthcare staff. It's vitally important. We're going to need ever more trained personnel. They are going to need to be developed in a way that is both valuable and satisfying for them as individuals, but provides the health economies in which they work with the greatest flexibility to address the changing needs uh, of the years ahead as economies and countries develop and the spectrum of disease that they have to address uh, starts to change. And we don't have that capacity for flexibility in terms of development of the healthcare workforce. I think that's a very, very important priority area. We need to identify in the Commonwealth ways of financing the development of health systems. There is a vast amount of opportunity to develop health systems, but many of those opportunities are lost because we don't aggregate the opportunities from smaller Commonwealth nations into aggregated masses of opportunity that can attract the kind of finance that will allow us to develop those health systems. That's a very, very important opportunity for the Commonwealth going forwards. And there's been talk at the recent heads of government meeting about the, the green bond to drive forward green finance across the Commonwealth. I strongly believe, and we have started to explore the opportunities to develop a health bond so that we can raise the kinds of capital necessary to develop health systems across Commonwealth nations with long-term committed uh, investment so that uh, those systems are better able to start addressing the challenges that they face. I think in terms of universal health coverage and uh, developing um, health systems responses, there is a large amount of work already ongoing, and I think the health hub in the Commonwealth needs to share experience and share the understandings in those areas, but in a way that is not directed to individual constituencies, but brings together the broad range of stakeholders that need to be engaged in any individual country or health system to make things happen. Because the problem has been we have worked disparately and in silos previously, and the solution to healthcare going forward is going to be a collective engagement uh, rather than merely an engagement uh, based upon individual interest groups. And then the final uh, note I see on our agenda is with regard to innovative solutions. And there is no doubt there is great opportunity for innovation in healthcare. We see it in some of the most priv privileged health economies, such as the United Kingdom and Canada and others, in terms of the kinds of innovations in healthcare that we um, are uh, experiencing. But many of those innovations are at a very high-end specialist intervention level. And I think as we've heard this afternoon, there are innovations that can be provided broadly across communities that will allow better access to information for individual citizens, but also for healthcare professionals who frequently 
in many of the Commonwealth countries work in isolation and need to be brought together to understand uh, simple uh, advances that can better uh, be applied for the benefit of those who they have to look after. And in addition, uh, the simple innovative solutions that can uh, provide the greatest uh, public health uh, advantages uh, through the most efficient uses of valuable resource. So I've been for a long time, as the Deputy Secretary General knows, uh, a great enthusiast of the Commonwealth taking a far more dynamic and proactive role in this area. We have seen at the last two or three meetings of the Commonwealth Health Ministers uh, ahead of the World Health Assembly an engagement in the health question that becomes more dynamic and more committed year on year. We have seen at this last Heads of Government meeting and in the associated Commonwealth Business Forum that brings not only the opportunity for governments to work together, but broader stakeholders uh, from the third sector, charity sector, and also from the commercial sector to make their contributions, a real commitment to the health agenda. And I'm pretty convinced that uh, we will... Uh, sooner than people think, have definite solutions uh, to the global health security challenge. But of all the options available to us, what we need to do as a community interested in healthcare and health across the Commonwealth is settle on one initiative that has the opportunity to have real meaningful impact across Commonwealth nations for the benefit of Commonwealth citizens, addressing the global health security issue and mobilize ourselves to focus on that, because delivery of the first initiative that has meaningful impact will encourage others to further contribute to what I think is an important agenda. Thank you so very much. We have a few minutes remaining, and the floor is open again. High Commissioner. I had uh, the advantage of attending the same uh, uh, panel, panel, panel system, I think it was January 2015, where this came out very, very clearly. And I want to take a rider on the Commonwealth. Um, there, were qu there was a question on what can the Commonwealth do? And also, I think Chatham House mentioned, you know, the multi-sectoral ma multi approach to global health systems. Too often in our countries, particularly the smaller um, developing countries in the Commonwealth, the issues of the health are, you know, you know, are seen to be an exclusive domain of the health of the ministry. Nobody really cares that much about it. And the government doesn't really make that concerted effort to see to it that it is integrated, it is part and parcel of the National Healthy Health Policy Plan. I just want to read for the audience here. Last year, 2015 January, what came out very, very strong. It started saying, reinforcing the significance of human rights in health policy development. This, however, requires political will, economic capability, and coordinated work among different sectors in order to strengthen health systems and address the underlying social determinants of health, such as safe and portable water, education, and gender equality. 
I think if these can be pursued, we are now just addressing the symptoms. We are not addressing the underlying fundamental problems. Everybody has to be a player. Our governments have to be fully aware with the diverse ministerial positions, education, health, agriculture, everybody has to be on board and see that health is a national development policy issue, not for the Ministry of Health. Thank you. Thank you, High Commissioner. <laughs> Do we have another comment, observation, question? A gentleman in the back who looks very eager to make an urgent inquiry. Okay. Thank you very much for, for your question, Commissioner, um, and, and Lord Kolka also for your support. Um, I think this is hugely important. And um, indeed, the issue of how do we get other sectors involved is a, a, a key one. It's, it's, um, we've talked about this for a long time, but the, the real problem is um, how do we actually engage them? More than in, 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 in a discussion, but in real collaboration. And what we've seen in WHO over the last, I think we have good experience over the last 20 years, where we see that there is indeed lots of good things going on at the local level, People do talk to each other, they do work with each other as well. Less so at the regional level, less so at national, and even less so at global level. So I think we see a, a steep decrease of, of the engagements with the different sectors there. But what we, what we um, have, have said um, for, for the last 20 years, we told the other sectors what they should do. And then we were very disappointed when they didn't do what we told them to do. And this is in parts to do that we didn't understand their agendas. If you are, let's say, a minister of housing, you have an agenda, which is to provide good housing for your population. Your primary agenda is definitely not health, right? Only if you then see, oh, it depends on the insulation, on whether or not they are dry, the housing that I'm providing, um, whether there's indoor air, which is good, that this has huge impacts on the health of the people who live in this house, you, are, you start to understand what, that there's perhaps something in for you that you want to work with the health sector. The same for social protection, the same for labor, the same for education. What we've done in WHO is to understand, to, 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 to get the case studies out, to say, okay, here are very good um, docking points, if you will, that um, are um, very good for the other sector, meaning the housing or the transport or the education sector, to work with us in health. So that is the first thing that we shouldn't, that we, we shouldn't just say health is for everybody, but to, to pin it down to very concrete win-win um, situations. And the second thing is then um, that we perhaps need to invest more from the health part to analyze what the potential consequences are that, you know, for instance, a housing sector takes or a transport sector in this commun community. So if you then have a policy um, on transport that we are looking at the potential health impacts and we're not only analyzing this 10 years after when we see that there's, 
you know, a higher rate of, of um, what, um, depression because we, we build these big roads just next to a, a, um, a residential area, but that we're doing this when these decisions are taken. Right? I think that's the second uh, initiative that we've, or uh, understanding that we've learned over the last couple of years. And then platforms for regular dialogue. You know, to have a dialogue like with, with you today, with the different sectors, to make, um, to, to make the point how important health is for all of us. I think that's also very good in awareness raising for the other sectors. And so therefore, um, these are just, just some experiences we had very concretely over the last 20 years. We need to come to grips with it. And, and this is then something of a political commitment. We see it in a couple of countries where now from the prime minister's offices or chancellor's offices or so, you see that there is um, a, a willingness to say, we need to have what we would call health in all policies, that we are really looking at the health effects of our doing in our government. And to bring it to that attention, I think, is the next step that we really need to engage in. Right? So I think that's, that's from that part, and I think that's also um, answering, or I try to answer also David, uh, D David Harper, your question with regard to how do we actually make it happen. That's the next step. The what is clear, the how-to is the more difficult part. Thank you, Rudiger. Elaine? Uh, the multi-sectoral collaboration piece is... Um, continues to be a challenge for us in Canada, I have to say. I think in part, um, and this is not meant to be um, an undue criticism of our colleagues in public health, but I think historically there's been a lot of re reticence from public health practitioners to engage with the private sector. Um, you know, years of seven or eight years ago, we were developing in Canada a um, framework on childhood obesity and the debate was raging amongst the public health practitioners across the country at the, at the most senior levels on whether or not we were going to bring in Coca-Cola and the food industry, you know, and other, other parties in the beverage industry who want to be partners in, uh, in this issue. But there was a huge amount of suspicion. So I think that we ourselves in, in, in health and in public health have to work through our inhibitions <laughs> and our mental model of how and when and with whom we engage from a private sector perspective. And I think we heard today anyway that they are key to, to the solution uh, moving forward. Um, I also think that um, we've experienced just with Ebola in 2014 and 2015 in Canada, the challenge of the multi-interdepartmental um, collaboration on an event that we had never ever experienced before. It was, it could have been a public health emergency in Canada. We were working very hard at not making it so. It was obviously uh, an outbreak somewhere else. And um, not everyone understood that if they weren't party to the solution, it could become a Canadian problem. Um, and so it was, it was a really challenging um, time to get partners to the table and uh, help them see that they, it was, um, there was a role for them in a broader domestic and international response effort. 
but the silver lining and the, and the opportunity that this provided us was a whole new level of awareness. And now it's my responsibility to make sure that I, I, I leverage that awareness. And again, back to the infrastructure piece, formalize through relationships and processes the, 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 the mechanisms that we would have to employ should I have to rely on other departments of the Government of Canada again. Uh, in a response of some kind, a, a public health outbreak of some kind, or a health outbreak of some kind. So I think that we learn, often we don't take the lesson to heart and we don't then move forward and do something with it. So we, we, we I have a challenge now to do something with it. <laughs> That's on my list of things to do in Canada. Thank you so much, Eileen. Uh, Dennis, yeah. Yeah, I think we have to try and figure out what the market can do and what the market cannot do. The only reason we have an Ebola virus today is because it was actually flagged after 9-11 as a global threat by the Department of Defense. And so that's 15 years in the making. Zika, because it probably won't make money, has been of no interest to the pharmaceutical community. At a meeting in Davos, a private meeting, which I think Jeremy Farmer is out in Andrew Whitty and the heads of all the pharma companies, they made it quite clear and sent a very clear message to government. We will not develop another philanthropic vaccine until you actually solve the Ebola problem. Okay, so you have to incentivize the private sector to actually come in and create a market for them. There is a huge market in digital health, although we haven't quite worked out where it is yet, um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have to really anticipate, I think, Brian, this comes to, to your, your comment, where the gaps are going to be where government or research establishments um, have to really step in um, to, to fill those gaps. So we, we haven't quite worked out where the market incentives are and where the market won't work in uh, new threats. Thank you. Well, I think I, I've, I've said my piece um, because I'm going to leave you in a moment, I think. I, 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 I do believe that there is a real opportunity because of the... The, the fact that health and healthcare sits at the top of so many national agendas now, but it will be squandered if we can't identify opportunities to address, the, as we've heard, the fundamental root causes of the problems, number one, and then provide solutions that are meaningful and can be applied effectively and quickly. And if one tries to boil the ocean, it's quite a difficult job. If one, however, identifies where to start to do something meaningful, even though that may not appear at the outset, the totality of the solution, it will allow us to engage enough at stakeholders and participants on the journey for us to make a real difference. And I think part of the problem in the past has always been the view that we must have a definitive, completely integrated, total solution to every problem at the outset, to have that uh, um, attract enthusiasm and be considered plausible. And so we, we need a different approach, but I am absolutely convinced that the Commonwealth and what it can do as an organization across these disparate health economies uh, has a very important role to play. Thank you so much, Lord Kaker. I mean, just some final comments from my side. Uh, the issue of NCDs, I mean, was raised as an important policy issue. At the time of the signing of the MDGs, uh, there was an understandable emphasis on HIV, AIDS, malaria, 
tuberculosis. And you had many other countries in the world, uh, including those in the Caribbean and now the Pacific, and with Africa rising, where NCDs, if not the number one health issue, will emerge as that. And as a commonwealth, our health ministers, they have given us the mandate as well to look at NCDs as one of our pillars with respect to our health work. The issue of financing came up repeatedly. When the, the SDGs, when they were agreed upon, I think there was a lot of negotiation on agreeing on these goals. And we landed, I think, in a nice spot. So people agree and recognize the SDGs. But the fundamental issue for the SDGs really has to do with financing the SDGs. When you look at one issue alone, that of infrastructure, it is estimated that 1.3 to 1.5 trillion US dollars will be required just to do infrastructure financing in developing countries. Just for your information, global overseas development assistance, it stands around 140, 150 billion dollars a year. Meaning that if you take all ODA and you just put it in infrastructure financing, you're going to have a massive shortfall. The point I want to make is that we need to have a coalition of the willing and bring together all partners at the table to finance health and healthcare. I think that's, that's a given. We have spoken about a range of issues and I started with making some observations about the poor and the small and the vulnerable countries. The reality is that nothing what I've heard thus far has responded to that fundamental and urgent need. We've heard about technology, absolutely required. Dennis, you spoke quite eloquently about that. We spoke about the importance of integrating systems and having a multi-sectoral approach. But the point still remains that many of our member states, they are in such a situation, they have very, very minimal capacities. But the panel, I think, made a very important and powerful point that we need a strong alliance, an alliance of international actors, as well as actors at the national level. And I also fully believe that developing countries, they have to accept responsibility and take accountability for decisions taken at the national level. Uh, in terms of this whole issue of health protection, this is a remit that we have gotten from health ministers. And this morning, we also spoke about a health uh, protection uh, policy toolkit and a health protection policy framework. This is something that we will continue to work on with our partners, uh, the UK Department of Health and Public Health Wales and other partners as well. Our health ministers, they are meeting again in May. And to my mind, what we need to propose to our health ministers are practical, clear, innovative policy instruments and policy options. So I think we have had a very good discussion, and I will ask Joanne and her colleagues to drill down a bit further, because what ministers want, they don't want us telling them the problem. They know. And this is what they hear, especially a minister of health. A minister of health will be listening to complaints from morning to night, every single day, until he or she is re-elected or voted out. That will happen as night follows day. However, what we need as a commonwealth is to propose very concrete and innovative policy instruments. 
And we spoke today about information. And that's why the health hub that we have established at the Commonwealth is so absolutely critical. Lord Keika chairs the advisory board for the health hub. And to my mind, what we can do, we can effectively leverage information in real time across our membership, utilizing the vast and wonderful resource that we have, or resources we have across this Commonwealth of ours. That's where we can add practical and clear and tangible value. I mean, those are some thoughts that, that, that I had and I wanted to share. We look forward to a very exciting ministerial meeting where we can provide clear policy options on these issues. And we look forward to a very strong and continued engagement. For us in the Commonwealth, I mean, this issue isn't going to go away. I mean, we, there is Zika today, there was Ebola last year, and something else will arise next year. We just don't know what will come up. And I think we need to prepare and we need to cater and put in place mechanisms for those emergencies that will come up. But at the same time, we have to make the requisite investments in the earlier stages as well. So with those closing remarks, thank you to our panelists for what has been, I think, a, a very good and nice and interactive discussion. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon and we invite you to a small reception now. And well done, Joanna and team. <laughs>